Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As many of our regular listeners will know, we have three types of podcast. We have our SJI seminar series, which is a look back at conferences and seminar presentations to hear from experts across a range of topics. We have our 10 minute lesson series, which is a very brief outline and policy areas touching on the things we think you really need to know about. And then we have our SJI interview series, which is when we interview experts um, in areas such as ageing, in areas such as poverty, in areas such as uh, climate transition, um, fast fashion, all of that. Uh, today is one of those. Today I am talking to Grania Lochran of Alone and Anne-Marie O'Reilly of Threshold on their report on older people in the private rented sector. It's an incredible report for those of you who want to read it. It's called Double Deficit, uh, and there is a link in the blurb for this podcast. So I really hope you enjoy it. So thank you so much, Gráinne and Anne-Marie, for agreeing to have this chat. Uh, it's been a long time coming, um, so I'm really happy that, that you've been able to make it together uh, to discuss this really, really important joint response between both Alone and uh, Threshold um, called Double Deficit, Older and Aging Persons in the Irish Private Rental Sector. Um, and I think it's, it's very timely. We talk a lot about pensions and pension adequacy. Um, and as you know, everybody is no doubt aware, the whole rationale behind the pension scheme as it's currently enacted is that you would have enough to live on because your housing costs were either paid off if you had a mortgage or you owned or they were so minimal because you were in local authority accommodation. And we're just seeing that that is is no longer the case. So we're going to get into that in greater detail. But if I can go to you first just to talk about your respective organisations, because people may not naturally put the two of you together um, in terms of the work that you do. So, uh, Anne-Marie, if I can come to you first, just a little bit about, I suppose, what Threshold are, are doing and, and, and you know, the, the types of stuff that you're seeing at the moment. Yeah, sure. So Threshold is a housing charity that so, uh, provides uh, advice and advocacy to people who are living in the private rental sector primarily and are having difficulties in their tenancy. Um, so we have advisors that are based in our three offices around the country, but we support renters no matter where they live in Ireland. And it could be that someone, there's there's repairs outstanding in the home, there's poor standards that need to be addressed. Could be somebody's received a notice of termination and wants to know, do they have to move out? Is it uh, above board, they might have received a rent increase and think it's unfair, it's a breach of the rent pressure zone rules. So it could be that they ring initially just to find out what's the story with this, what are my rights? Uh, and it could be that, please, can you speak to my landlord? Can you speak to the letting agent? Um, since early last year, we've seen a marked increase in the number of people who have received notices of termination, uh, in, primarily for sale as landlords are choosing to sell their properties and exit the sector. Uh, so a lot more of our time has been spent advising people on those. Unfortunately, we're seeing an increasing number of those um, that are valid, which means essentially the, the tenant has to move out of that home. But luckily now that I guess there's been an increase in the tenant in situ scheme and we're now seeing the new cost rental tenant in situ come into place, we're able to point people in the direction of the local authority to see, is this an option for them? Is this a runner? Can the local authority or an AHB uh, buy that home to allow them to stay in the home? Because that's ultimately what we want to see happen is people stay in their homes and those homes to be secure um, and that they can stay in them for life, which is what any of us really want um, to have that security. Um, and then on the other side of it, we, we do our um, ab advocacy work and policy work and research. So we're we're looking at those issues that are coming that the I suppose the, there's the perennial issues for renters and then there's emerging issues because we're um, on the ground. We can kind of see what's coming down the track as uh, similar to alone and to try and spot those trends as they emerge before they become problematic. And we, you know, put forward policy proposal proposals and solutions to government, and we, you know, engage with central as well as local government in the delivery of our services, and to implement um, policy changes. So yeah, that's kind of the gist of threshold. 
And sorry, just before I come to you, Grania, uh, Anne Marie, you referenced the the tenant in situ. You know, this is obviously a relatively new scheme, particularly mm-hmm. the the cost rental element of it. And um, is it making much of a difference? Do you see it into the future, say, in another twelve months' time, making a significant difference? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think if um the if central government continues its support and backing for it, and the local authorities get a feel for it and see that this is having a real impact. Um, yeah, I think it can continue to be a vital part of housing delivery into the future. You know, like in the past, like, you know, there are criticisms for when local authorities buy uh, from the market because they're seen as competing then with would-be owner-occupiers and possibly, you know, getting into a bidding war, which doesn't really help anyone. But I guess in this instance, these are homes people already live in. Uh, who have a need of some description and um, by the by doing the direct engagement with the landlord so instead of the landlord putting it out in the market the landlord engaging directly with the local authority in the first instance kind of avoids that bidding more element and it's adding to um, the the state's um, you know assets um, and I suppose something that I would have said um, you know there's always that tension between you know should landlords be allowed to sell the homes um you know you know what you know you're kind of doing all people who want to buy a home out of uh the opportunity to buy that if the tenants left in place but so to a degree why would a potential owner occupier have more right to that home than the person already living in it so that's i think the tenant situ really kind of gets that balance just right and we we'd really would like to see it become a standard part of housing um, yeah, provision I mean, going forward Absolutely. I mean, it's no one would have any argument with a landlord continuing to rent for an extended period of time. Um, you know, you wouldn't be kind of say, well, they've, they've been renting for five years. Will they ever get up and, and sell it now? Thanks very much. It's yeah. just the fact that there was a transaction in the middle. But the the situation for the tenant stays the same. And that's that's really important. Yeah. Uh, Grania, just a little bit about, I suppose, alone and where that kind of crossover lies, really. Of course. So Alone is a national organisation and we support older people to age at home. So we have about 200 staff, uh, 5,000 volunteers. And last year we supported uh, more than 22,000 older people. Um, so our work is for all older people. Um, it's around physical, emotional, mental well-being. Um, but it's also around housing, finance, technology, um, a range of different supports uh, to support and enable older people to age at home. So we see really the broad range of issues that older people experience. Um, about a third of the older people who came to us last year reported an issue related to housing. And it's interesting, I suppose, um, ourselves in Threshold, we work with slightly different cohorts, but there's some overlaps. So um alone is an AHB so we have housing for older people and we work with older people who are experiencing or at risk of homelessness and a high proportion of the older people who we work with who do experience homelessness get to that point from the private rental sector or they have done in the past so they might have received a notice to quit um, and often that notice to quit has been valid and the appropriate amount of notice has been given and there there isn't recourse really. Um, but there's also no additional supports. Um, and that's how an alone staff member might end up going down to the local council with someone in their 70s to help them register as homeless. Um, so from our own data, we know that older people living in a house they don't own are more likely to require assistance for personal care. Um, we're really seeing the overlap at the minute between socioeconomic and housing issues and health issues. Um, and I suppose housing is such a vital element of the supports that this country sees itself as uh, providing for older people. It's an intrinsic part of that system. Um, like you say, the pension system is has been developed with the view of that's okay because you own your own home. But we know that for a lot of people alone work with, that's not the case. And we know that for a lot of older people going into the future, that won't be the case. Um, we'd also work with older people um, around things like housing adaptations um, to make the home they own or they rent 
suitable for their needs. Um, other things we see would be things like internal housing repairs, needs around cleaning, external repairs, support with appliances and furniture. So it's really a range of issues um, that older people experience in regard to housing. Um, and I suppose for a long time, the cohort of older people with housing difficulties hasn't been one that's been adequately represented, I would say, at policy level, or their needs haven't been fully kind of taken into account because of the assumptions that um, a lot of us have around older people not having housing difficulties. And what we see as well is that you'll be in um, a tenuous situation if you're renting, if you're in a local authority, but also owning your own home is not a guarantee of safety and security in that home. Um, so it's a, quite a broad issue um, for the older people we work with. And that's, I suppose, given our own work as an AHB and we've been an AHB for uh, 40 years and more now, um, this, is, this has been a key issue for us for a long time. Yeah, and I, I, you know, as you said, alone as a as an AHB an approved housing body, you know, you're seeing people who are in need of, of housing who may have come from privately owned accommodation. And I had the pleasure is probably the wrong word, um, given the subject matter, but you're a very effective and powerful speaker. And I had the absolute pleasure to to witness you giving a presentation last year where you talked about some of the housing issues that people have in terms of, you know, we, we still have people with outdoor toilets and we still have, you know, that there's a lot of dereliction where people are still living in the properties. Um, and, you know, that there is that, I suppose, that hidden to all except the likes of yourselves, um, that hidden aspect of, of housing and home ownership and, and when you might actually own a home, but it's not, or own a, a property, but it's not a home because it's not sufficient for your needs. And I suppose that brings me nicely to the, the next question that I have in terms of the, the purpose of this, because obviously there's some crossover, there's some engagement there. Um, but how did it come about? Why did it come about that you your two organizations would collaborate? Are there are there an increase or is there an increase in, in older people approaching threshold? Um, is it that there's an increase in older people who approach alone for other supports who are also living in in you know rented accommodation or or how did it come about? Um yeah, so in threshold, that's exactly it. We we in recent years we've started to see a growing number of our clients um <clears throat> in older age groups and a decreasing number of people um under the age twenty five actually. So um I'm actually quite interested to see the census data when it's published to actually get a look at the option. <laughs> yeah, the, We're the, such nerds. Everybody's yeah. nodding. <laughs> all, the, all the nerds in the room, put your hands yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> to have a look at that up-to-date profile of renters because uh, the 2016 data at this stage presumably is fairly out of date but we'll see who knows maybe it's similar but um, yeah within our own client group we were seeing a shift in that and um. The, uh, and because you know, uh, following the, the global financial crash and the changes to the mortgage lending rules and um, a lot of people being on pay freezes or had pay reductions, it did mean a lot of people ended up renting for longer than maybe they had originally expected or intended to. You know, that idea that renting is transitional, you do it in your 20s, you buy your house, maybe late 20s, 30s, and that's you kind of done then. That didn't happen for a lot of people and those people stayed renting and those people are now, you know, in their 40s and so on. Um, and we are starting to see that shift. Uh, so um, for as part of the study, they did look at the RTB data where they surveyed tenants and within that data, 17% of the renters were over, over 45, which is similar to our client data. But if we look at those that are over the age of 35, it's actually closer to half of our clients that are over the age of 35. Uh, so while the research you know, refers to older uh, people renting, uh, we looked at people from the age of 45 and up because the older you get, the more difficult it is going to be to buy your own home. Um, and you may not be eligible for social housing. So we are concerned about those who are currently renting who are of an older age and those who are uh, a bit younger but likely to, to rent for, 
for life. So um and, and because renting is, is insecure, uh, because there's no guarantee they'll be able to stay in that home for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, um since early last year we're seeing a significant increase in the number of landlords evicting to sell so there's that quite a bit of turnover for people uh, so that's um what what led threshold to start looking at at this issue and what led us uh, brought us and alone together uh, on it yeah you raise a really interesting sort of disconnect and Social Justice Ireland are, are constantly talking about the need for policy coherence and calling on government to ensure that there is policy coherence. And we have this, you know, on the one hand, we have a, a target of 70 percent home ownership. And then on the other side, we have, you know, a real push for for bill to rent accommodation. You know, we're we're, we're not quite out from under the um, co-living type accommodation you know this this idea as you say that tenancies are transitory in nature that there's something you do until you get your own home um and i i saw an ad for a, a, a property six hundred and ninety five thousand. this might suit a young couple starting out like we're still talking property ladder but the property yeah. the first rung on the property ladder is now 700 grand um so you know there is that huge disconnect from a policy perspective um Gornia, can i get a loans perspective on that? i suppose the, the purpose of this with threshold and the value of that collaboration absolutely um i think um what amory said about the what we're seeing coming down the line is of huge concern i suppose to us and alone particularly because we know uh, we know how this is going to go um, if nothing is done, because we see it with the people we work with. Um, so what we expect is that we're going to see a significant increase in the numbers of older people in rental accommodation, experiencing homelessness, etc., if there's not substantial changes made. So there was a report done by the ESRI last year um, that said that two thirds of people currently aged 35 to 44 are likely to become home owners through purchase. So that's a third who won't. Um, and then that percentage as well, you know, for people aged 25 to 34, that's low, that's lower again. It's harder to, to estimate. But given the current trends in with declining home ownership, with increase in rental, um, we're quite concerned and given the aging population on top of that um we're, we're likely to see an avalanche basically um of older people in need of support in the coming years and this is really significant um both in terms of a loans work uh but also in terms of um like you say the need for uh, an approach to policy that takes in the life course so already i suppose we see a lot of the time we see that older people's housing is sort of siloed um there's a a sort of an approach to mainstream housing that does not necessarily include housing for older people it is, it is seen as something that's separate kind of a, a nice thing to do but not really necessary um and that doesn't really take into account what um what our population is going to look like um, in 10, 20, 30 years. And as we all know with capital investment, um, it's not something that happens overnight. Um, the Even in things like uh, cost rental, um, we're concerned how does somebody moving into cost rental now, uh, once they retire, how do they pay the rent once they turn 66 or depending on their retirement age? Um, because the cost rental rents are significant um i think the the lowest one i've seen is upwards of 900 euro for uh one bed so we're concerned really that if you're not developing creating solutions for older people you're you're only creating short-term solutions um because if the cohort who age in those solutions need the supports and need things to change after that well you're in trouble and um, it's something that I suppose we've put forward in previous reports that alone have had about the range of housing options required for older people um, and the different things that are required that, that can support our ageing population going forward. 
Um, but like I say, it's, it tends to be seen as an aside rather than as something that we need to do to um, solve housing or to find some solutions for housing. The thing is, I mean, we're all going to get older. Um, we see older people today uh, that we work with living in houses they bought when they were younger that are now not suitable for them. Um, we're working with an older man, for example, um, over in Mayo, who is a wheelchair user, and we applied for a grant for him um, last year because he fell into his um, his stove, his open stove, uh, couldn't get himself off and got really severe burns. Um, and, you know, that's, a, that's an extreme case, but it's also the case that, you know, you have we need to make the home wheelchair accessible um we need to make sure that the place has a heating system that is not that that he that he can use safely um and that's just one example of one person we're working with but we see it with hundreds of older people across the country that um we don't always necessarily build homes just off the bat that are suitable for us as we get older yeah, that whole concept of, of universal design is just nonsense. You know, it's out the window. Even the fact that you, know, you would build just a certain proportion when, mm. as you say, that the hope certainly is that we will all get older. We're all going to need that additional ease, you know, even if it's just kind of soft closing doors, if it's, you know, even if we were wholly in 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 um, control of our faculties, we're still going to need, as we get older, that additional just ease, that support. Um, and I think the, you know, your organisation is quite, bang in the centre of the, the coal face of what's coming down the line if there isn't something radical, you know, if there isn't a change made so that people who are in the rented sector who may not, you know, get a mortgage, who may not, you know, jump that 700,000 property ladder rung, um, you know, it, it's going to come to you. So as an organisation, it's something I'm sure that that's, that's very keenly, not alone are you dealing with the population we have now, but it's coming down the line too in terms of, of future generations of older people. Um, in terms of the report, and it is, it's a fascinating read. It's 120 pages, uh, but well worth reading um, because it's it's very comprehensive. It goes through huge detail in terms of, of what is, is the current situation. And then it's got a, a very comprehensive suite of 12 recommendations. So if I can come to, I suppose, the overarching findings of the report first. So we'll come to the, the recommendations after that. But was there anything, I suppose, first of all, the headline kind of findings, that the headline things that stick out that people should know about that maybe they aren't aware of, um, whether that's the, the blindingly obvious to the likes of yourselves working slap bang in the middle of it, or whether, you know, and it, that just may not be something that people readily think about, or whether it was something that actually surprised you that came out of the report. Um, well, I will say the authors of the report really capture the findings in their title, the, the double deficit. It does, it does say it all. So the deficit in the private rental sector, that it cannot meet the needs of older uh, people and, and people as they age and um, that it really does fall short and then the other deficit being the deficit in uh, strategic planning and even the data needed to to put the plans uh, in place and um, so yeah and, and, and for the researchers themselves they said that's what was standing out to them when they conducted the research. So I guess the deficit in the private rental sector probably doesn't come as maybe a huge surprise to, to many of us. Um, I will say though, and maybe I was being too hopeful or I haven't become, or maybe I haven't become too cynical yet. But I guess <laughs> I I was, I would guess I was hoping to see that it could be salvaged. Um, and while there are recommendations in there about mitigating measures for the private rental sector, the overall um, messages it just isn't up to task um, and um, you know landlord representative body um, you know uh, representative was interviewed and the the message from them was it's not for older people 
that, that the, the rent sector isn't. That's that's not the place for them. And the state needs to ensure that appropriate housing is available. So that was that's a quite strong message in and of itself. And I, I will admit I was a bit surprised to 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 read it. But, you know, at least we know that's the 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 position um you know from, and just from to that. be clear that's in its current iteration it's just not fit for a purpose yeah uh yeah but there doesn't seem to be a desire for it to be so um i think there was um yeah nobody wants to kick somebody out an older person out and make them homeless Um, i guess that speaks to maybe the current approach to uh private rental properties being investments to mm. be um you know sold off when the time is right for the the owner um and then the um the uh one thing that did strike me actually in relation to the interviews then with the the renters so 31 people were interviewed as well as an analysis done of the RTB zone survey data um but what struck me was so people who were interviewed didn't seem hugely aware as to whether there were alternative housing options out there. Not that there's many, but they didn't really seem aware, nor did they seem to be thinking about them or looking um, for them. And and I, I found that unusual. And I did ask the researchers about that. And uh, one of them did say that, you know, obviously the interviews were, were quite intense. And when you read the, the report, like you could feel the, the stress and the anxiety uh, that people are experiencing. And I can only imagine that those were difficult interviews for people. He said when it was becoming apparent that people weren't aware of other options or weren't even looking into them, he didn't always necessarily press that issue because people were already quite distressed. Um, so the, the, the and um, so that surprised me, actually. Um um, and maybe it shouldn't have, but, but it did. Um, but I guess the fact that most people said, I wasn't expecting to still be renting. You know, they were going along, living their lives, assuming or hoping or planning that, that at some point they would transition into ownership or maybe social housing. It hadn't happened. And next thing, they're of an age where uh, life is getting a bit more difficult, a bit more challenging. And they hadn't even considered what other options were out there for them. So that that did actually surprise me a small bit. And um, then in relation to the other deficit with the, the the strategic planning and all of that. So there was a number of um, uh, other stakeholders interviewed from statutory bodies and non-statutory. And uh, among the statutory uh, bodies, the interviewees recognize, oh, yeah, this this is a this is a problem. But for later. You know, there still seems to be that idea. This is down the road. Like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to sort that out. Uh, there didn't seem to be a recognition. Well, the, we need to start now. Like, well, it's already a problem for some people. Uh, you know, uh, and if we want to avoid it becoming an even bigger problem, we need to start putting the, the plans in place now, putting in the infrastructure now. And it is referenced in the document that that's done in relation to pensions and economic planning for an ageing society, but it's not been done in relation to housing. So I was a bit surprised at that, that there's a, they know it's an issue, but still think it's down the road. And then also when it came to those stakeholders presenting maybe solutions or ideas or proposals, they were largely coming from the non-statutory. And I'm not saying that to have a dig at statutory bodies and say they don't have ideas or solutions, but it did strike me when I was reading it. I'm going like all the suggestions here are coming from the non-statutories. And they were mostly organisations, representatives of organisations who work closely with uh, the, the 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 older people the people that we are concerned with um yeah so those are i think some of the things that kind of struck me from it um and Gron, you may have similar ones or other ones because i guess because we're coming out from our own organization's perspectives there's might be different things that jump out for us just before uh, Gronya comes in, like it's that is fascinating, and it, it is something that that struck me. Um, and coming from my own kind of debt background, not my own debt background, but coming from a debt background, the um that that vulnerability was very clear in the report. Yeah. That that thing of not wanting to press because this is already opening a Pandora's box that someone hadn't expected. And when you're asked to look inward and you're asked to reflect on your current situation, as you say, people are just going about their lives. And then it's like, well, oh gosh, this is this is me now. This is what, you know, I'm going to be one of those statistics. That That's me. Um, and I, I did think that came across quite beautifully in the report and uh, how that was all laid out. Um, but it's, 
And you're right. I mean, even with like we know the the campaigns that are run by the RTB in particular around landlord and tenants' rights, and you know, Threshold run some excellent campaigns around it. And we've talked before about the need to raise awareness generally around rights in the private rented sector. And then we read a report like this, and it's like, oh yeah, they don't they don't know what what might be out there of course they don't they may not know the current rights they have where they are um so it but it's it is that thing i suppose when you're you're in it all the time that you don't necessarily appreciate that people don't even when they're living in it they don't know that there's a an alternative that there's something different um and i i I think it's quite interesting the that observation that you made around you know the statutory versus the non-statutory you know part of it is is very possibly you know they they can't speak outside of of government policy and that's that's Mm. the role that they're in and that that that's absolutely you know that to be accepted um but the you know, they may well, as you say, have their own views of what they would like to change dramatically. Um, But until we have the structures in place and that system in place to do it, it's mm-hmm. going to be very difficult for them to voice those those changes. Um, And that, that kind of future thing, like we talked, we were at a, a joint directors committee recently and we talked about a commissioner for future generations, particularly around things like the sustainable development goals, the SDGs and you know, a, a well-being framework within that and what that might look like. And to me, it's always coming back to, well, housing and ageing and, you know, the, we're not going to be able to get that well-being. We won't achieve those milestones if all we're looking at when we look at future generations is the future younger generation rather than, as we all know, future generations of people in their 80s, 90s, 100s uh, who are still going to be here and who need appropriate and adequate accommodation. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop uh, talking in a minute, but um, even just a, a, a recent um, conference I was at that was hosted by the Department of Finance. And again, it was all about sustainable public finances into the future, into the kind of medium and and long term. And it was talking about taking the big government surpluses and investing them and how we might invest and what the returns might be. And and at one point got really complicated into the type of investment vehicles that you might use and the type of return that you might get and what that will mean for public finances. And all of that was you know, very important, very interesting. Um, but it also struck me again that nowhere in that conversation was, well, what do we need for today? Because today we have massive infrastructural deficits. Today we have increasing levels of poverty. And yet we're constantly, we're almost looking too far ahead to actually deal with the issues of today because if you don't deal with them today as you said Amory they're not going anywhere soon they're just going to keep coming with you there there'll be today's problems in 10 and 20 and 40 years time uh Gronia, sorry I <laughs> down off my soapbox back to you yeah no just very similar to Amory I think I I was surprised I would say at in a report that ostensibly about the private rental sector and um the difficulties with that that so many of the recommendations have to be about social housing that it's which is nearly i mean you could nearly divide it to two separate reports in that sense if you were um if you were looking at it because the like Amory says the private rental sector we can make improvements. There are things we can do to improve standards and um, there are affordability measures that can be put in, et cetera. But by and large, it's not going to be a solution for everybody. Um, And that is something that is really not taken into consideration. And I think also the point about the data deficit that like, I, I should never be surprised at the lack of data, um, given that I tend to go looking for it all the time and can't find it, but um, that there is so little available at, um, I suppose, from statutory organisations that it's not something that's really being considered. Um, like when we look at the options for 
like the alternative housing options for older people um and we've we've tried we've tried it alone to kind of gather all of this together before very difficult um but there's roughly um this is 2018 um Irish Council for Social Housing figures but there's about 9000 homes um provided by AHBs specifically for older people nationwide um we can't we couldn't get data on um social housing more generally um but some counties were recorded at that time as having less than 30 units of sheltered housing um some counties uh, there was one county that had zero and one county that had two um so it's <laughs> it's it's and and then at the same time you're looking at local authority housing development action plans and there doesn't seem to be plans to significantly hike up the amount of housing for older people that's being built either some some now some are better than others some like are taking it on board but some don't have don't commit to any development of housing for older people and some commit to maybe one or two percent um of their development to be um specifically housing for older people um so i think the I suppose sometimes in this sector we get the idea that um there must be data there somewhere. We just can't it's just somewhere, you know, some someone in the department will have it somewhere. But in this case they actually don't. Um or at least uh and if somebody wants to ring in and say, actually I have all this data or <laughs> send an email, amazing. But um the, but we but we couldn't find it um, and I think that um that was a surprise to me I think as well as that the um we, we do see the levels of vulnerability um among older renters and alone but like some of the comments um that people made in the reports really just highlight just how tenuous and just how difficult it is um like there are pieces about you know this is my biggest problem ahead of any illness i have that like um you know people who have like quite severe health conditions um that are living in the private rent sector and simply can't simply can't manage and don't know what they're going to do um so while it's something that that we come across it's something that surprises me every time um anytime something like this comes up because um again it's something that um i don't think a lot of people really consider um when we're talking about the housing crisis more generally um and we know that um predominantly at the moment it is a fact you know there are more younger people in private rented accommodation and you know significantly affecting but I think there's also a piece where um it's an easy narrative to have that oh well older people all own their own homes and they're all fine but we all know that life is more complex than that and life takes different turns and it's not it's not just as simple as well the older people are fine and the younger people are in trouble and that's simply not the case yeah and i you used a, a phrase there that people may not be familiar with but that that sheltered housing like what does specific local authority housing for older people actually entail what does it look like well, there's not very much of it. <laughs> and it's actually, what should it look like? <laughs> it's actually something we're seeing at the minute with some older people who are living in general social housing. And we can't, you know, people who are stranded essentially on second or third floor apartments because they can't manage the stairs anymore and there's no lift. Um, and trying to get them transfers into something that's more suitable to them and it's just not available it's just not there um but what we see as being a significant need are models of housing like housing with support that will provide own door accommodation 
um, with uh, that is universally designed, that is fully accessible, that can adapt to your needs as you get older um, and your needs change or you've um, you've health difficulties or other issues that you might have. And that's something that we would see as the uh, the ideal to be replicated across the country and at the moment alone are involved with Circle VHA and um, the Department of Housing, Department of Health, HSE in developing the demonstrator project for that model of housing in Inchicore. Um, it is taking quite a while but you know ground has been broken and um, it's on the way but our concern is that that needs to be replicated and that, um, you know, you can hold up a demonstrator project and say, oh, well, this is the great white light of housing for older people. But if you don't have a couple of them in every county, then you're really not getting very far. Um, and I suppose social housing for older people that's specifically designed like that at the moment there's excellent examples across the country. There's some amazing examples of housing for older people. Um, the problem is that there's too few of them and it's small developments of maybe 15 units here, 20 units there. Um, and, you know, that's it. And I think the, the difficulty is really in scaling that up and, um, getting the commitment to scale that up um, and I suppose it's something that at a time of housing crisis and you know, like huge pressure and in increasing development and increasing you know bricks and mortar it's quite easy to um, not look at that as a priority and say well the quickest and easiest way we can develop housing is to do it like we've always done it um, and to just keep doing what we're already doing and just get people in houses now, which is really important. But if they're not the right houses, then we're just going to see more difficulties. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely take your point in that we do some things really well, but we don't do enough of them. So cost rental and another example of something that could work really well mm -hmm. if it was scaled in particular, yeah. but we've got pockets of it. And that doesn't allow that experiment to really actually take flight because it's too expensive because it's too small. Um, Amory, can I ask you something about, and it's a, I suppose it's a more general question or comment um, I was looking for the the quote in the report. The the concept of renting overall, you know, the we've talked already, and you both kind of referenced the fact that people still feel well, it's it's transitory. It's even if you've been in it for 10, 20 years, you didn't expect to be in it for 10, 20 years. You expected to become a home a homeowner or a local authority tenant. You didn't expect this to be what you were going to face post-retirement. And there's a, a brilliant quote, and it's just a short one. Um, I've lived here for eight years. I've made it so it could feel like home, but it's not home. So after eight years, it's still, that person is still very conscious that this isn't, they're still living with that insecurity. Is that is that a prevalent thing in the private rented sector? Is that something that is experienced across the board? Yes, yeah, very much so, unfortunately. And actually, um, we published a report in 2020 with Dr. Michael Byrne from UCD, uh, security and agency in the Irish private rental sector. And that was one of the big things in it. A lot of the people who were interviewed in that spoke about that exact thing. I think one person even said, I have... I, I don't even know if I should bother and pack the boxes because will I be here? Uh, you know, it didn't feel like theirs. Um, and that's such an important element of feeling like you're home. Like, um, it, yes, you can rent there. You can come back to it every single day. Um, but if you can't do the things with it that make it home, then it's 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 just a place where you are temporarily staying. Um, and that's something that's prevalent Um. In in the literature on on the private rental sector more generally, um, it it isn't necessarily something that's just a specific, uh, to Ireland, that that feeling that this isn't home, this isn't, and it will never feel that way, no matter what you do to it. Yeah, yeah, and there's a really powerful 
piece uh, on the impact of well-being in the report um, that we're talking about. And it's again, it can be summed up just in two words and it's not good. Um, but it's it's that, you know, what, what Gran you referenced earlier on about someone saying, well, it, it's their concern over and above their illness. Yeah. It's a man of 70 saying that, you know, now that he's nearly 70 um, he's thinking about getting older and he's thinking about that he could be kicked out at any time and to live with that constantly hanging over you. Uh, another interviewee, you know, talking about the experience of depression due to the search, the ongoing search for for more accommodation. And with that as your background, um, the recommendations become really, really, really important because, you know, we talk about it quite a lot, as I, as I know you do as well, that need to move away from siloed thinking, that need to move away from, well, if it's in the housing budget area, then it's the, the Department of Housing's problem. But as we can see, it can become the Department of Health's problem. Um, you know, it can become the Department of, of Public Expenditure Reform's problem. It's it's much broader. It's it its tentacles reach much wider than that. Um, so with the recommendations from the report, and as I said, there are 12 of them, uh, all very worthwhile. Uh, you know, is there anything that you would specifically want to highlight and you know even if it's from the perspective of your own individual organizations or collectively or is it just do all 12 please no just i think it would be do all 12 <laughs> yeah yeah I, I that's exactly what i was going to say because um i it has like it the, I, I think what often happens is that individual measures individual things that the organizations such as ourselves put forward get done um, but then all the other things that need to happen don't occur. Um, so um, one I can think of rent pressure zones, right? They were brought in to mitigate increasing rents. Uh, initially, was it two or three years they're brought in for? And we're, what, we're going on seven years now. I don't think anyone thought they'd be in that long and certainly didn't want them in that long. We would rather not need rent pressure zones, but the measures to increase affordable, sufficient levels of affordable housing, no matter the tenure, did not happen alongside the RPZ. So we're still we're still stuck with them and it's a bit of a mess. So I think it's the same for this. I think all 12 need to happen because there is, with, with anything like this, there is no one uh, single solution uh, to the mm -hmm. issues we're facing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think... The thing is, there all of the recommendations are solutions to different problems, um, all coming together to kind of put people in a better situation. But um, like even in terms of you mentioned there about um, things that are the Department of Housing's difficulty today might be with the Department of Health. Another day, um, I mean, one of the recommendations in there is to implement and fund the actions relating to the joint policy statement and housing options for our aging population. Um, so one of the actions from that was to implement a joint framework between the departments of housing and health. And I suppose we we know that the framework exists Um, we have never seen a work plan for it. Um, they, there hasn't been an update on any of the outstanding actions. All of the all the actions were, were due to be delivered. Um, I think the latest one was the latest deadline there was um, 2021, I think, for the statutory home care scheme. Um, which quarter we're still waiting on to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but that um that framework was due to was due to be put in place. Um, the last report we've had on that policy statement was published last June. Um, and referenced this framework as going to work on anything outstanding. We've no idea of anything that's happened since then. Um, and one of the recommendations in the report is that to establish the distinct unit to address the housing support and care needs of older people across the departments of housing and the Department of Health. Um, so to a certain extent, some of what we find, um, and not in this report, but I think a lot of reports that I, that I look at and that 
sometimes um there's some there's new recommendations here of course but sometimes it's just follow through on things that we're already committed to um and a focus on that but aside from that one um you know recommendations around benchmarking the pension really important to us and one we're continuing to work on um the piece around data and like a very simple data question around up-to-date figures on the number of housing units provided via local authorities on an annual basis it's so simple it's such i that i don't know why it hasn't been done um and you know the quest the recommendation around housing adaptation grants housing models via ahbs they're not things that can that individually will provide a solution for everybody so um it's hard to i suppose pick uh pick a couple to focus on <laughs> if i can ask a controversial question that i haven't prepared you for actually um but i know it's something that at least some listeners will be thinking of you know What's in your 12 recommendations for the landlords or are they just the big bad wolf in this situation? Uh, no, they're, they're not the big bad wolf. Um, and actually, I'm double checking. Did we put it in the recommendations? Not Well, the, the <laughs> yeah, the security of tenure piece. So, um, yeah, there's a need for lots of different housing options for people, and you know, there's there may the and there were people in the who participate in the research who who are renting out of choice and may very well be happy to rent for life and and have what they need. So this is so it's a security of tenure piece, which is then important for those people. Um, Recommendation five for those of you who oh. have the report to hand <laughs> while they're listening. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there panicking for a second because you, you, you get confused between all the different. Of course, the different drafts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, what Threshold have said, um, you know, landlords have been saying or the representative body has been saying, look, you need to reduce the tax on rental income. You need to reduce tax on rental income. Now, I don't see that likely happening. I think that's a very big ask. It's a very big ask to want a blanket reduction on rental income. However, what Treshall has said, um, if the if the government you know do want to pursue that, then yes, by all means, offer a reduced tax on the rental income in exchange for long-term lease agreements, whereby the landlord can only evict the tenant where there's been a breach of the obligations. So while technically we do have tenancies of indefinite duration at present, a landlord can still evict if they want to sell, required for their own use, refurb, change of use, or it's no longer suitable uh, to the tenant's needs. So people still get kicked out of their home when there's been no wrong wrongdoing on their part. So what we like to see is long-term um, security, long-term leases, it would mean the tenant takes on greater responsibility for the upkeep of the home uh, and things like that. But in exchange, then they could have the reduced tax on, on rental income. And um, we think that's that would be a fair exchange. It won't suit everybody. It won't suit every single landlord. And it may not be an option that every renter is interested in. But I think it needs to be um, one, one of the options out there. Great. And then finally, if I can, um, your budget 2024 asks, we are well into budget discussions at the moment, um, you know, based on the, the cabillion euro uh, surpluses that we're going to see. It's going to be over 11 billion this year, uh, similar again next year, potentially up to 70 billion revised upwards from 65, uh, in but you know, cumulatively in 2025. It's a big budget. It's going to be a very complex budget. There's going to be a lot of pull in terms of whether it's a wealth fund or a, you know future generations fund or whether it's paying down debt, whether it's infrastructure development. What would your budget asks be? Yes. Yeah, so we're just getting by the time this goes out, we'll have launched our, our pre-budget submission. So uh, we're in the midst of it at the minute. Um, our one of our key asks is around benchmarking of the state pension. Um, so this is something that was committed to on various occasions in the roadmap for social inclusion um, for by the Pensions Commission, a range of different um, groups of reports over very many years now um, to put in a benchmark for the state pension to be 34% of average wages. 
So that's something that is really important to us, particularly given the significant increase in poverty among older people in the last year. Um, 19.2% of older people are experiencing poverty. Um, that is something that will require a significant increase to the pension of upwards of 40 euro. Um, last year, we asked that that be that the benchmark be gotten to over the course of two budgets, so that um, so that would give time to develop relevant legislation and um, put all the background um, the background work in place for that. As far as we're aware, that hasn't happened. Um, but we are looking for, um, at the very least for this year. Um, a commitment to increase the pension by a minimum of €27.50 Euro 50, um, and on the way to reaching that benchmark, a full commitment to implementing that benchmark. And if the will has moved away from that, that that be acknowledged and explained in an open forum so we can uh, stop asking for things that are never going to happen and save us all a bit of time and energy. Um, but... Aside from Rory has had it, she's had it. Um, and then I suppose we have a range of asked then around um housing adaptation grants, and we have been waiting as well on a report on a review of housing adaptation grants, which was due before the end of 2022. Um, but we're seeing significant challenges with that on the ground this year. Um, they it's a race against time really for people to apply for the grants before the schemes run out of money um it's not the money's not ring fenced even though grants were approved um in some areas our staff will set applications aside so they can send them on january 1st so that they can be sure they're in on time but you know in waterford we've been told there's a waiting time of two years and galway we're waiting on money approved in 2022 um in Louth, the scheme is still closed. Um it closed um at the end of May to because they had they didn't have sufficient funding. Um additional funding has been allocated and we're waiting for the scheme to re reopen again. It's you know, it's a huge challenge um to actually get people the housing adaptation grants they need. Um we would and th that's just the beginning really of a whole things that need to be fixed about that scheme from um the the limits on the grant amounts um to um what the grant can be used for so one thing we would say is that decluttering would be a really valuable support to have in the housing aid for older people scheme um but yeah we need a funding increase essentially it would need to be at least doubled the current funding for housing adaptation grants um but because again, this data deficit, um, there isn't data currently collated on how many grants are turned down year, year by year, um, or you know anything that's that can't be done because of the lack of funding. So that's something really significant um, that we're working on this year. And yeah, we have range of asks around isolation, loneliness, um, energy poverty um around housing of course and um i think you can be fairly sure that the recommendations from this report were uh fairly well copied and pasted uh into our budget recommendations for this year as well great stuff thank you and Anne marie yeah so i suppose um one of them i've, I've touched on it is in relation to the tax treatment of rental income and um, so that you know if it is going to be done, that it be done in, in that way that it's targeted and re results in uh, increased security of tenure. In relation, I suppose HAP is a big player at the moment and a big support for people. Um, and while there was a review and an increase in the HAP discretionary rate, the base rates have remained uh, the same since uh, 2016. And uh, we would like to see a system put in place whereby those uh, base rates are reviewed uh, on, a reg on an annual basis even to ensure that a proportion of the properties in the local authority area you know, co come in uh, uh, are met by the, the half base rate because at present, and we see it in the Simon Communities Report each quarter. 
nothing, nothing comes in under the rate. So people are forced to pay those top ups. And I suppose that is touched on um, a bit, you know, with in regards to you know, older people and those on a on a limited income trying to meet that top up is is impossible. Um so we would like to see um a change to how the HAP rates are set. We we are looking at vacancy and dereliction, I guess, because well Grant, yes, it does take some time to, to build houses, although I'm I'm glad we don't really hear that phrase, houses aren't built overnight anymore, because <laughs> as I always say, we didn't, we, build at all. we didn't ask yesterday, but um, <laughs> I suppose one, the we would see bringing vacant and derelict homes into use is quite a quick way of bringing, bringing homes back into use. But I did see from the Housing for All update yesterday, there was an announcement in regards to funds for that and some, um, I think, setting in new targets. I have to have a proper look at that. But we would like to see, you know, definitely want to see money um, put into that uh, to bring those homes back into use as quickly as possible. Um. I guess as a, I suppose it, it's not always seen necessarily as a budget ask, but it does it does require money. It's not reliant on the budget for it to happen, but it's a good time to ask. We'd like to see a referendum on the right to housing. Um, so I know the housing commission are to make their put their you know finish their report and send it to the minister, and they've been tasked with looking at at that uh, as to whether there should be a referendum and what the wording of that right might be. But we are really keen to see the government hold that was in the programme for our government. And I guess the clock is ticking uh, for them to, to hold that referendum because we really do need to have a, a right to housing recognised in the constitution to really shift policy toward viewing housing um, uh, as a right first and foremost uh, so that it, it it forms part of all government policy plans and uh, budgets and how they decide to spend their money and um, if you want to you could even just look at well housing is an essential uh, part of social infrastructure the same as you know, roads if you really want to look at it that way because without a home how are we to go about and live uh, in society and and contribute and 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 work and learn and do all the things that we we, we we were meant to do yeah so that's one of our, our other asks and just I suppose that I'm not altogether sure I certainly haven't seen a lot of reporting on it um I know Threshold did some reporting on it a year or two ago um but it doesn't there doesn't seem to be kind of a, a again a centralized repository of this type of information in terms of the increases those those top-ups that you talk about Amory. Mm. um and certainly you know I'm aware anecdotally that they can be pretty hefty mm. and yet when we look at things like the rent credit that came in last year mm that's you know they're not available because there's a subsidy already in place and yeah. um, is there a more up-to-date data set anywhere that says what's your average what are people you know even a range of what people are paying uh so i believe so people are permitted when you're unhappy you're permitted to pay up to 30 percent of your income that's sort of the rough rule of thumb so if there is a, a top up um as long as you don't end up paying more than 30% of your income on your rent, the HAP unit should go ahead and approve that payment. So they they may know uh, those sort of official top-ups, mm. but um, for anyone who's paying above and beyond that, they, there is no record. There's no uh, uh, official record anywhere. We collect that on a true tenant sentiment survey uh, each year. So this year, people report a payment between 50 a month to I think 1200 a month was actually the highest. And even as I say that, I go, that's crazy. There's no way somebody was paying that. But I'm actually pretty sure that's what the highest one reported to us was. So, yeah, we're aware it happens, but there's no official record anywhere of what those unofficial top-ups are. I suppose it's one of those things around policy that it's hidden because it excludes you from another policy response. When, again, if we were looking at kind of goals and frameworks that move us to where we want to be, we wouldn't we wouldn't have that kind of siloed thinking yeah. um i would just like to say thank you so much to both of you i really do appreciate your time i really appreciate all of your efforts in in scheduling this chat with me today um it's been fantastic is there anything either of you would like to to finish with so i i know you mentioned the report's 120 pages uh which may put some people off but um even if you were just to read the uh if people were to read the older uh 
people's person's experiences um of renting it's such a valuable chapter like it it tells you everything about what is going on for for people uh, older people who are renting and um it really like it was a really rich report like it i read it and i was surprised at how quickly i got through it because the way it's written as well is incredibly accessible so i will say the authors did a fabulous job uh, on it absolutely i think the personal experiences are and we find it across the board it's the personal experiences both that will bring reports like this to life but they're often also what moves the dial on actually getting a commitment or getting action or um some kind of policy response um so i just echo emory in that that it's something that that we see so regularly but you never really get desensitized to it um every time you you read or you talk to a person who's experiencing it, it kind of hits you afresh. So I'd encourage anybody, and particularly anyone who's maybe a policymaker or within an within the NGO sector or anything like that, to to maybe take a look at those and um also to I suppose consider um the forward planning piece and the piece around supports for older older people. Um, across any uh, reports or policies or work that's being done um, too often that it's, you know, it's considered that data ends at 65 and reports end at 65 and everything after that is kind of left to one side. And um, it would be great to see uh, rep- representations reports and policies that reflect the full life course thank you so so much I'm 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 glad to see it doesn't kind of you don't get desensitized to it on the one hand but obviously for yourself being very lovely uh, I am very sorry to hear that but thank you so much again um and you know you, you've been fantastic so yes absolutely please to all of our listeners please do check out the report uh, as Anne-Marie said, it's, it is a, an easy read. It's a it's a really interesting and engaging read um, and a very, very vital and important one to all of us. So thank you so much. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Do check out the report. The link is in the blurb. Um, if there are any questions or if you've any suggestions for future podcasts, do get in touch at secretary at socialjustice.ie. And until next time, stay safe.